Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 3, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of Spiritual Grit and the Jesus-Centered Life and editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. I'm into all things Jesus. So if that lineup of resources didn't give you a clue, and, you know, maybe the title of our podcast. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that uh, we've revisited sometimes how this podcast got its name. I wanted to call it, you know, unimaginatively, The Jesus-Centered Life, because we wanted to start this soon after that book came out. But the Becky Nader, who's on the podcast today, had a better idea. She said, basically, the equivalent of, how boring, Rick. And she said something like, uh, you know, you use this phrase all the time, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. Let's call it that. That's a lot better name. And here we are with the longest podcast name in the history of podcasts. You're welcome. It's attention grabbing. It's attention grabbing and a tongue twister at the same time. So we're in a two-month pursuit of episodes on paying ridiculous attention. And the series is called The Newness of You. We're really trying to tap into this very brief season in the cycles of our life where at the start of every year, we are more open to considering change than probably any other time of the year. It's also the time of the year where we start and stop changes in rapid cycles. <laughs> we don't really persist. And the point of this couple of months of focus on the newness of you is to really pay attention to the ways that Jesus transformed people permanently. Jesus wasn't interested in cyclical change where you start and stop things. He wanted to transform people from the inside out, and he did. So we thought it would be interesting to explore the many different encounters Jesus has with people where they leave those encounters permanently transformed to see how these encounters might also indicate how our lives could be permanently transformed as well. So that's the premise. This is the third episode of this series. And as I mentioned, we're welcoming back the Beckinator today. So Hi. there's the Beckinator. Do you want to say anything about the, the newness of you right here off the, off the top of things? Anything new happening with you that you want to share? Well, there's tons of things new. I moved into a new house and I'm actually sitting in my brand new office that I just finished putting together and I love it. It's a peaceful environment where I get to do lots of creative things. I also just attended my first More Than Me event in Boise and it was incredible. It was such a wonderful time spent with powerful women who were shedding their shame and claiming their purpose. And that was just really incredible. And I also just have been doing some really incredible work. I just launched an app this week for any of you guys who have middle to high school students. It's called Artists college app and you can find it on the app store and it's incredible. It helps kids prepare for getting into college and I'm having a blast. I, as you guys know, I really love working with that age group of like kind of high school to college. I've talked about that on the podcast before, just all of that like purpose that they have and their bright futures and they're so optimistic. So I'm having a blast working on that. The Becky Nader and I are recording this podcast because she's far off in Oregon and I'm right here in Loveland, Colorado. We're recording this over our Zoom online app. And so we can look at each other. And I'm looking right over the left shoulder of the Beckinator right now to a plaque on her wall that says, Be Fearless. Be Couldn't Fearless. Be more appropriate for not only you, but this podcast and everything we do. We, we want to lean into a fearless relationship with Jesus. And we know that the strength for that and the, and the vulnerability for that really comes from him. So this, this third episode, we're going to be uh, exploring the transformational power of friendships in our life and how transformational friendships show up in Jesus' encounters with people, how he moves in transformational ways through friendships. So that's what we're going to explore today. And I thought it'd be an interesting way to start out, Becky, to just explore 
well, how our friendship started and persisted. And really, it's funny because our friendship started the way a lot of really good friendships start, not because we uh, somehow met each other in a social situation or something like that. We were thrown together <laughs> to work together. Forced and, on each other. Hoisted <laughs> yeah, upon. And, and it's funny, you know, because I've been here at group for three decades. And I've, so I've worked with a lot of people. And some of those people I've had a real, what you might call chemistry with, and some I haven't, just like anyone else in a workplace. And when we were uh, launching into this whole focus and kind of pouring ourselves and investing in creating resources that are Jesus-centered and designed to help people grow in their intimacy with Jesus, when we went all in with this, one of the things that we had, uh, I had this idea to start was a, a podcast, and I'd never done a podcast before, so I was fishing around for ideas. And when this idea of this podcast first came up, the Becky Nader was the person in charge of you know, promoting all of these things. And so I started talking to her, and I'd never met her before, really. I started talking to her about the possibilities and my original idea was really not only the title wasn't the best title in the world, but my original idea wasn't very inventive either. And she started immediately inputting into that idea. She wasn't shy about it. Bossy. I, I really, really appreciated that. Sometimes people aren't shy about their opinions and their opinions are rotten. Becky wasn't shy about her opinions and her opinions were really good. <laughs> So right off the bat, I was drawn to her and I started to trust her right away. And then when we talked about actually doing the podcast together, that was another step really of vulnerability and trust because to do a podcast with someone means you have to have some kind of easy relationship with that person or it's going to be like pulling teeth. So we discovered that we were kindred spirits, I think, along the way. It couldn't be more unlikely. I'm probably, what, 20 years at least older than you, and we come from different backgrounds, different family trajectories, different everything. But sometimes you meet people who are different in every way except for the core ways, their core orientation. So maybe, yeah. Becky, you could talk a little bit about how our friendship sort of evolved. So some of you listening for a long time might have thought, oh, Rick and Becky, they knew each other for a long time. They worked in the same company for a long time. And so they were buddies and they decided to start this podcast together. But like Rick said, we worked for a really large company that was organized into very large departments that were situated on opposite sides of the building from each other. And Rick and I had been working at the same company in completely different departments on opposite sides of the building and our work before had never crossed over. I think we had had maybe one meeting where we were in it together in a large group of people, but we had never really interacted one-on-one. -on -one. And also I was, I'm, didn't have a very significant role at group. I wasn't like a high leader. I wasn't a leader at all. And Rick is the like executive editor of youth ministry and all of these things. And he's been with the company for a really long time. And so suddenly they just said, hey, this book being worked on in a completely different department to the point where it was written, it was developed, it was designed, it was done. It was, it was actually in printed form <laughs> in front of me. And they were like, guess what? You're gonna market this book and you're gonna work with Rick and it's gonna be this kind of cross-departmental thing and it, it's all gonna work out beautifully. <laughs> um, and so when Rick, brought up, the first thing that happened is I read the manuscript and that was a really life-changing thing for me. Jesus-Centered Life is a book that I continue to read over and over again. And I was very moved by it. And so when he said he wanted to do a podcast for me to be sitting there in the fireside cafe and say, no, I want to do this podcast with you. Yeah, that we, was actually, kind of a, we actually have a, a cafe in our building. That's called how big this company is. And it's uh, strangely next to a fireplace. Yes. Yeah. And so this wasn't, this was kind of a bold career move for me. It was also a bold move for my life that I would learn. I would learn later how much of a bold move that would be for my life. And I think sometimes 
when it comes to the most profound people in your life or the most profound influencers in your life, you have to sometimes take a step out and make a bold move. And that's actually how this started. And I remember I was so nervous when we first started. Many people don't know this, but we actually threw out our first episode, if you remember. I did Um, not remember that. We threw out our first episode because we were stumbling to get the right synergy. (laughs) And Steph actually was like, you got to start over. So we did. And we've been on track ever since. But yeah, it's amazing how friendships, sometimes you have to boldly go out and go after the right kind of people in your life. And this would be a great example of that. What's what's interesting too, is I'm just thinking back, tracking back over the course of our friendship. It's really full of these moments of both small and large risks. You risk with each other to show yourself to the other person and to invite feedback into your life from the other person, and you risk getting involved in that person's story in a way that has the power to change something about that person's story. And Becky Nader and I have both taken risks with each other to change the trajectory of our stories because we acted on the underlying courage that a real friendship requires to progress past acquaintance. So along the way, you may find so many aspects. Again, the outward shell of the friendship looks like two people that are very different. You could find very deep kindred paths, things that seem to merge in a sort of mysterious way and create a synergy where the the two of you together are better than the two of you alone added together, if that makes sense. And so friendships like that are precious, obviously. And it can be easy for us to take for granted that they'll come along again, but they don't. They don't always come along again. So uh, I feel so grateful that in the kind of crazy, chaotic, mysterious way that Jesus brings people together, that Becky's story threaded into mine at exactly the time that it needed to. Mm -hmm. So as we talk through about friendships today, where Becky and I will kind of reference back to our own story together and also our own friendships and how those friendships over the years have impacted us in our own intimacy with Jesus. So I thought it would be good to start off, though, with kind of get the lay of the land with friendships. So we know that friendships represent a universal longing for all of us. They're always a source of great delight and longing and meaning but also a source of pain, especially if friendships don't come easily for you. It's amazing when you bring up the topic of friendships in a group that we, we have this expectation that it's a, going to be a universally positive conversation about the, the role and depth of our friendships. But what you typically get is a lot of pain and heartbreak and disappointment that people have experienced over the years. Even people that appear to have lots of friends sometimes think of their own lives as friendless. And I I thought it'd be interesting to get a kind of a sonar reading about friendships in the United States. So a couple of things I wanted to mention, and then Becky and I can talk about these things. There's an article I found in the magazine Business Insider that's titled, The Average American Has Only One Close Friend. Here's how we got to this point. So I'd like to just read a little bit from this article, and then Becky and I can talk about it. It's an article written by Emma Sapala and Peter Sims, and it starts this way. About a month ago, a group of about 20 men, all fathers in their 30s and 40s, gathered at a home in Oakland, California to talk fatherhood. Alarmingly, when asked how many of them had, quote unquote, real friends, the kind of confidants with whom they could talk honestly and vulnerably about life on a regular basis through good times and bad, only two people raised their hands. Now, it might be tempting to interpret this sense of isolation as a crisis of masculinity in the U.S., but the available research suggests that loneliness is a problem that supersedes gender. In a sociological study, a large percentage of Americans reported having shrinking networks and fewer relationships. The average American, the study found, has only one close confidant. The same study showed. And the leading reason people seek out counseling today is because of their loneliness. I'm going to skip through later on into the article where this line that I want to pick up. We know from decades of research described in the two authors book called The Happiness Track that our greatest need after food and shelter 
is for social connection. From birth through old age, we need to feel that we belong somehow. And then to the very end of the article, they talk about Brene Brown, who many of you already know of, who has written quite extensively on the power of vulnerability from a sociological perspective. She's a professor at the University of Houston Graduate School of Social Work. And the writers talk about how her book, Daring Greatly, which is about how we allow ourselves to be seen, they say, when we admit our fears or self-doubt, we connect with others and in turn give them permission to be themselves. In sharing our fears and insecurities, we find true relationship. So what's interesting about that is that buried in that little last comment is partially some of the reason why so few of us have close confidants, because close confidence with other friends requires vulnerability, real vulnerability, and we are averse as human beings to trusting others with our real vulnerability for good reason. We've experienced pain over and over again. We've grown out of the trusting place of children to the distrusting place of adults. In fact, uh, the two writers of this article commenting back on the opening story about the men's group in Oakland, they say it took one person at the men's group in Oakland to admit his vulnerabilities for everyone to suddenly open up. You've probably been in a group like this before where everybody's kind of dancing around the surface of each other and there's not really any vulnerable sharing. And then one person takes the risk and that sort of opens the floodgates. Then friendships become an actual possibility in that environment. So as you think about what I just read, Becky, does anything stick out to you about this musing about why people have so few friends in life? I mean, it's not at all surprising to me. I have gone through seasons of my life where I had really bad friends. I think at the beginning of like my high school and, and very early college years, I had really bad friends, but I didn't actually know I had bad friends. <laughs> I didn't know until late, like midway when I got into my last years of college and I was going to Biola and I was working in ministry and I had really good friends. And all of a sudden, the stark contrast of that was so, so stark that it was so evident that I had had such bad friends before, what, but I didn't. Difference, what's the difference between a, uh, when you're using bad friends and good friends? What are you really comparing there? My bad friends, they didn't give me a safe environment. They were constantly putting me down. They wouldn't believe in me or uplift me. They weren't thoughtful or considerate. And they didn't give me a safe place where I could just really share my heart and my struggles. When I experienced the extreme hospitality, I would say, of really good friends who I knew wouldn't betray me, who I could trust, it was so healing. And then after college, I moved to Colorado and it took a long time for me to find new friends because when you move somewhere new, especially when you're an adult, it's actually a lot harder. And I, I was actually just visiting a friend in Boise who just moved to the area and she's going through that same struggle of she had really good friends back home. And now she's in a place where it's hard to find friends when you're adults. And so I think sometimes we don't even know that we have bad friends. And then when we do have good friends, all of a sudden it makes it even harder because you miss you, you start to compare every new person to those old friends. I'm in a new season too, where I just moved to a new place and I'm once again starting over making new friends. And so I think you, we go through seasons and it's a really tough thing. What's interesting is that you're pointing out here the difference between deep friendships and superficial friendships and didn't know you had superficial friendships until you experienced deeper ones. That's uh, I think that's a profound observation. One of the other things I ran across was an article by a therapist who was trying to understand, and this is an article in psychology today. He was trying to explore whether or not American friendships are superficial. So the title of his article is, are American friendships superficial? And I thought he started this article in a fascinating way. He's going to tell a story here about meeting a woman from Germany and how the difference between cultures, the, the profound difference between cultures in how we consider what friendships really are. So let me read to you a little bit from this article by Jefferson M. Fish. Here's how he starts. I was speaking to a German woman who has lived in the United States for a decade and has made it her permanent home. She was describing her likes and dislikes about the U.S. in comparison to Germany. 
For example, on the positive side, she was enthusiastic about the opportunities for work and advancement she had found here based on her skills and accomplishments, as opposed to Germany, where an insistence on the right credentials is often insurmountable. But on the negative side, she complained that American friendships are superficial. So I've heard this criticism before with variations like, I don't have any deep friendships, and people form and dissolve relationships too easily, or you don't know if you can really trust people, and so on. Well, this woman described a misunderstanding with a coworker who referred to her as a friend. And the German woman said, well, you're not my friend, she said, you're an acquaintance. We go out for coffee together and we chat about things and that's not friendship. Well, the other woman obviously was offended and telling someone in the US that you're not my friend is tantamount to saying you're my enemy. It took quite a while for this woman to overcome this misstep. What is going on here? I think that's a great question. What is going on here? I found how this German woman responded kind of strangely refreshing. <laughs> I totally get why the other person would have been offended when she said, you're not really my friend. I'm also married to an Irish-Italian wife who, um, well, let's just say she's blunt on occasion. And I think that's part of why I was drawn to her in the first place. I come from a family where straight talk was not their forte, shall we say. So when I met Bev for the first time and she was a straight talker, it kind of felt like water to a parched ground in my soul. So when I read what this German woman said to this woman who called her a friend and the German woman said, uh, I don't really think of you as a friend, I think of you as more as an acquaintance, I kind of found that refreshingly honest. What about you, Becky? How does that hit you when you hear that? You know, we did this activity at the More Than Me event this weekend, and it was all surrounding the words that people speak over us. And I think friends often have an opportunity to speak words over us, and they can be good words or they can be bad words. And so we had to take some time and we had to write words down that people had spoken to us that tore us apart. And so for me, I'm just going to vulnerably share some of those words. So one of the things I wrote down is you're too much. You're just, you're too much for people. You need to scale it back. You're too much. Another thing that I've been called is a bulldozer, right? I come in and I take over and I bulldoze over, over people. And those are things that people have spoken over me. And those kinds of words have broken me down. But there's also, there's also words that have been spoken over me from good friends. Rick is one of them. Rick is the person who said to me, you're the Beckinator. The reason he calls me that is because he says that I'm the kind of person who makes things happen. If there's a project that you want done, or if there's a dream you have, I'm the person you want in there because I make things happen. I, have to, I have to say too, Beckinator, that there has never been a truer word spoken about another person than that. <laughs> you are exactly that. You enter the room and things happen. It is the most obvious thing about you, I think. And I can understand why people might take that wrong. Like mm -hmm. this woman in this story took this wrong that this German woman was being so blunt with her. Mm -hmm. And I understand why she took it wrong. But there is something very enjoyable, I think, at the core of that. There's a truth and an honesty and a cleanness about what she was saying yeah. that actually, if you can step back from the emotions of it, is enjoyable. And I think the same is true. You've experienced before people saying words to you about something that is treasured and good about who you are. I guarantee you Jesus loves and delights yeah. in that aspect of you, but others can be taken off guard by it. Out of that experience, they can speak out words that aren't really true about who you are. And the, it's those kinds of words, I think, that cause us to retreat back into being superficial. Because yes. once somebody does that, you suddenly just want to be, you know what, if I'm too much, I want to be less, right? And so then when you start to become less of yourself, you start to be less vulnerable with people. And it's that vulnerability that brings out a less superficial relationship. But I think many of us have had experiences where the wrong words were spoken over us and then we retreated 
And so then we retreated more and we retreated more. And then superficial friendships just felt safer. They felt more protected, like you weren't going to get hurt again. Yep. Uh, totally true. And later on in the same article, the uh, writer goes back to this German woman and mentions something I think is fascinating relative to the way that she saw friendships. So she saw friendships as a much deeper commitment level and vulnerability than the American woman who almost haphazardly called her a friend. So here's what the writer of this article says about this woman from Germany. I should also mention that during her childhood, the place where this woman grew up was in East Germany. Before reunification, the Stasi, the secret police, were an omnipresent danger. People never knew if they told someone their true thoughts and feelings, whether that information could be passed on to be used against them. Trusting someone as a friend could mean putting your life in their hands, a much greater commitment than friendship is here in the U.S., Even though that time has passed, the more intense commitment involved in friendship lingers on for this woman. Again, I have to say, I think this woman's um, perception and treatment about friendship is much closer to the truth than the casual way that we treat friendships. She's she's come out of a place where um, if your friend betrays you, you could die. If your friend doesn't handle your vulnerability well, you could be in big trouble. The stakes are high. So friendship really, really meant something. It meant, in some cases, life and death. And we don't always feel that in our friendships. But I think for both you and me, Becky, we have also been in places where the friendship of others has felt like life and death to us. Like they speak and act in life-giving ways or not. But we are in a place where we desperately need that life-giving intrusion into our lives. It's interesting to me that one of the phrases that you just said, that you have one of the lies that's been spoken over you is that you're too much. It's funny because that's the exact same lie that I labored under for a lot of my life. I so distinctly, you probably remember exactly who it was and where you were when words like that were spoken over you. Cause and I know I do. I, when I, before I married Bev and I was, um, trying to force myself to date. <laughs> Dating is such a, uh, it, was, it was hard. But I was trying to be vulnerable. I was trying to sort of put myself out there. And there was a girl at one of my workplaces who was interested in me. And so I asked her out and I was just my normal self. I asked a lot of questions during our dinner. And I could tell as the dinner went on, because I asked so many questions and I'm so curious, that she was like caught in a hurricane like her hair was blown back. I think I was just way too much for her. And later on, when I went to go drop her off, I knew I could hear this voice in my head. I just knew I had been way too much for her. And the voice in my head said something like, yeah, and you're always way too much. And one of the redemptive threads of my own journey is my deep acceptance of Jesus's mirror in my life telling me, Rick, you're not too much and you've never been too much. In fact, there was a tipping point, a turning point in my adult life when Jesus was one of those times where Jesus spoke directly to me. And so it was almost like it was audible. And he said to me, not only are you not too much, I want more. I want more than what you've so far given. Give me more. It was the most freeing thing in my life that I knew distinctly that Jesus was asking for more, not less from me. Because you're so right, Becky, that when we experience pain, the pain of you're too much, it's a default setting in us to try to manage ourselves to become less, to hide, essentially. And hiding is the very thing that Adam and Eve did after they first sinned and betrayed God. The very first thing they did was find a way to hide. And Jesus, in his redemptive pursuit of us, has ever since been trying to get us to not hide anymore. (laughs) I think when you say the difference between life and death, we may not be living in a society where we have to be afraid of being murdered 
if somebody betrays us or if we trust somebody that we shouldn't have trusted, but we are living in a society that is being swallowed by depression. And that depression, the words of your friends and your ability to be able to be vulnerable and yourself with them and to have life-giving words spoken to you can be for some people the difference between living an abundant life or living a dead life that's swallowed by depression. And I, I do think that friendship and having the right people around your life, it can save you in so many ways. And I definitely experienced that this summer. The people in my life, when I went over the edge, were the ones who pulled me back over to the other side. So when we talk about what really changes us and what really forms us, the community that you have and the friendships that you have and the kind of friend that you are can make a huge difference. And we're going to look at some of Jesus's closest friends in this episode today. And I think it's important as we launch into that to remember something too, that I remember uh, the first book I wrote was actually co-written. I was recruited to write it with a man named Ben Freudenberg. I might've told this story before on the podcast. The book was called The Family Friendly Church. And Ben was an expert in family ministry, an innovator, a pioneer in this approach to ministry that in uh, funneled everything through the power and influence of parents rather than ministry professionals. And group wanted to capture what Ben was doing in his church and turn it into a book, but Ben wasn't a very experienced or capable writer. So they recruited me. They asked me if I would write the book with Ben. And the last thing I wanted to do was write a book that was somebody else's vision. <laughs> I just wasn't interested in that. But the more I thought about it, the, and because I knew Ben, the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what? If I created an excuse for myself to be around Ben a lot, like writing a book with him, I bet he would, just being around Ben would radically change my life. So I said yes. And Ben and I lived in each other's homes off and on for about five weeks in order to create this book. And my life was changed by him, not simply by what we were writing about, but by the presence of Ben, the things he liked and didn't like, the ways he responded to me, the subtle nuances of how he interacted with me, all infected me because I was immersed in his presence. And that's exactly how friends influence us. It's not simply what they say or do. It is their presence that really transforms us. They're, we are immersed in whatever is at the core of who they are. And that's the thing that really changes us. So as Becky said, we're going to take a quick look here at friendships and how friendships wove their way into uh, people's encounters with Jesus and how, how they played a role in their deepening attachment to Jesus. I thought it'd be uh, interesting first just to look quickly at John chapter 1. In our the Jesus-centered Bible I'm reading out of, if you're not driving right now and you want to flip open your Bible to John chapter 1, I'm going to read a little section starting in verse 35 and uh, to the end of the chapter that in my Jesus Center Bible, the, there's a header over this section called the first disciples. I want you to think about as I'm reading this, all of the friendship connections that show up in this little stretch. And then Becky and I will uh, take a quick, a quick assessment of those. So starting in verse 35, the following day, John, John the Baptist, was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there's the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. See the friendships show up, surface here? Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want, he asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John had said and then followed Jesus. So Andrew had been a disciple of John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, there goes the Lamb of God. And they immediately stopped and started following Jesus and spent the afternoon with him. So Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, um, he went to go find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Hear the friendship showing up here? Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you'll be called Cephas, which means Peter. 
The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said to him, come, follow me. Well, Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. So Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and see for yourself, Philip replied. As they approached, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. Nathanael goes, uh, how do you know about me? Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I'd seen you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than this. So here we have these first encounters. It's amazing to me when we think about how did Jesus first gather his disciples? These are stories of friendship, friendships risking, friends risking on behalf of each other to invite them into something, to take a risk and to start following somebody they had just met. If you think about the, the massive life change that follows these decisions made on very little information about Jesus, we're still in the very first day they've ever met him. And he's already got almost half of his disciples who have reached out to each other and said, come on, join me in this. Anything stick out to you about that little section, Becky? This whole passage to me is just one invitation after another. It's mm. just one invitation after another invitation after another invitation. Good friends invite you into things that are going to be good for you. And I just see all these men coming together and inviting one another. They're not hoarding this to themselves or hiding it for themselves. They want everyone who they love and know to be a part of this. I also wrote down, they show them the truth. And then there's just a lot of communing. They're going to each other's homes. They're inviting each other around where they live and where they, there's community there. So good. Well, that's a little appetizer. Now we're going to focus on the main course here. We're going to take a look at a story of an encounter that Jesus had with a paralyzed man. And this encounter, it's an iconic encounter. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard this encounter before, but when we read it this time, we're going to use the filter of friendships and the role friendships play in this paralyzed man's remarkable story. So I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So let me just uh, lay out the story for you. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Just to pause just for a second, when it says, while Jesus was preaching the word, that word preach is rendered from a Greek word that means to proclaim. So Jesus was likely reading from Old Testament scripture, unveiling to all of his visitors how all of scripture actually pointed to him. He was in, the, in this early stage he was trying to help people understand that he was the expected Messiah. So that's likely what he was proclaiming to these visitors who'd come to his home. So while he's doing that, these four men arrive carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Now they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole in the roof above his head, and then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. So we got to pause here just for a second again and say the reason those men could dig a hole in the roof of this home is because these ancient roofs were made of wood beams covered with branches and plastered with mud. They were high upkeep roofs. <laughs> Every year you had to replaster them with mud, fix them. There was always cracks because of the hard summer sun cracking the mud. So they would have to, you know, fill in those cracks. They were always working on their roofs. They were not like ours, which take very little maintenance. And so because of their construction, these men could kind of dig through the, the hardened mud and then pry apart the branches and actually create a hole. But this must have been some kind of major hole in the roof. If you're going to lower a man on a cot or on a stretcher down through the roof, this is a massive hole. This must have been chaotic and oh my gosh what's happening 
So just to set the stage for this. So they lower the man on the mat right down in front of Jesus in this packed, packed house. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, now take note of this. He's a paralyzed man whose friends have just dropped him down on a mat in front of Jesus for obvious reasons. He's paralyzed. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, my child, your sins are forgiven. Well, some of the teachers of religious law who are sitting there, they're there to hear this new rabbi. You know, they're curious. They want to hear the next big thing. And here Jesus has this paralyzed man plopped down in front of him. The first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. So teachers of the religious law were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Well, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or stand up, pick up your mat and walk. So I will prove to you that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he's about to prove to them that he has the authority to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we have never seen anything like this before. No, you haven't. What an afternoon in the house of Jesus. Uh, and Andy's left with this gaping hole in his roof at the end of this, a, a marker, a reminder of the extraordinary thing that just happened. So, um, Becky Nader, let's take a look at this and slow down a little bit and consider some questions relative to this story. The first one is, what are some things we know about the paralyzed man's friends just from this account? What are, what are some things that, if we slow down and pay attention here, what are some things we know for sure about this man's friends. Well, this is like an Indiana Jones, like epic friendship move. You know, <laughs> this is not, I mean, so many people probably just don't have friends that would even just come over and babysit their kids or help them in, in small ways. This is like a committed group of men who are daring and risk-taking and they're doing it vulnerably in front of these really important religious leaders. And this is probably a very frowned upon thing that they're doing so much to the point where they're like, well, we can't get in the door. We'll just dig a hole in the roof of the house. That's okay. I mean, just, could you imagine the conversation before that? Like, well, looks like we can't get in. Uh, who has some out of the box ideas? Uh, well, we could climb up on the roof and dig a hole in the house and drop them down that way. I mean, this is commitment. This is like, we're not leaving here until our friend gets healed. And because of their commitment level, the other thing that we know about the friendship between these men is that it's permanent. There is a permanence when you are at that level of commitment. I have friends that I was in college with that I know will always be my friends throughout my entire life. I just saw a bunch of them at a, a wedding. One of them, his oldest daughter, just got married, so I was reunited with some of these guys, there's four or five guys I was really close to. We still stay in touch, but when we see each other, our connection goes so deep that it's as if we haven't been for years away from each other, which we have. One of those friends, I was just thinking about this story and thinking about stories of friends who do this sort of thing. One of my close friends reached out to another friend in that little group of ours. That other friend, early on in his marriage, they weren't making ends meet. He needed to make more money than his full-time job. So he, without telling a lot of people, sort of humbled himself and took on a paper route early in the morning to earn a little bit of extra money during the day. When my friend heard about that friend's decision, he drove over in the morning two or three times a week to just drive, be in the car with my other friend while he delivered papers just to be his companion. It makes me want to cry when I think about this, but that is so much like something that my friend would do. His name is John. That's just how he rolls as a friend. And because of that, I know in my soul that I am always going to be friends with John because his commitment level to me and to our other friends is off the charts. He understands, like the German woman understood, what level of vulnerability, commitment, perseverance, and having your friends back really means, the depth of what that can mean. 
and he go and he went to the mat for him. So we know that these friends of the paralyzed man are like that. They're transformational friends. They are all in with their friend. And Becky, when you think about friends that have been all in with you, um, how do you, it, it's almost a shock to us when we discover that we have friends who are all in with us. It almost is hard to fathom or get our minds around. Can you think of an experience you've had where you had a friend who committed to you in this sort of way and what impact it had on you? Yeah, and I don't just have one, I have many, but when when everything came out about my husband, I had friends who came and went through my house looking for drugs and for guns and for stolen items and who sat through the messiest, dirtiest, deepest, disgusting time of my life and just were there with me. And there was laughing and what they did is they humbled themselves down to the level that I was at. They didn't just fix my problem. They just were there cleaning up the mess with me. And it showed me that I didn't have to be ashamed of what I was going through. And, you know, I, I think of your story that you just told him, your friend could have just wrote him a check or helped raise money. So he didn't have to do the paper route. He could have fixed the problem. But what he did instead is he sat and humbled himself into the place where he was at so that he wouldn't have to feel um, humiliated for the position he was taking. And there's something so much more beautiful and deep about that than, than just fixing the problem for them. And then, we, and then in the story that we have here, the man's lowered in front of Jesus. It's obvious why they're lowering him. They want Jesus to heal him. And then Jesus does something surprising. Instead of healing him, which they know he can do, instead, he tells the man that his sins are forgiven. So let's talk for a minute about, well, what is motivating Jesus to do what he does here? Why does he do this? Why does he forgive sins rather than heal his physical body? Why does he then say to the Pharisees after he's done that, I'll prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins, and then and only then does he heal the man's paralysis. What, what do you make of this kind of strange, <laughs> strange sequence of behaviors and events? This is one of those stories where we have to kind of look at what, what isn't written. And right away, I wonder, like, how did this man become paralyzed? What, did he do something? Did he do something shameful to get to be this way? Was it because he, I don't know, I don't know why he is in this state, but Jesus knows that something deeper has to be healed here, something that is rooted in shame. He also could just be poking smoke at the religious leaders and wanting to make them a little mad. I mean, that's another total option is that Jesus was proving a point in front of these really important religious leaders. He was known to do that as well. But what we always know about Jesus is that he's never really after fixing our physical problems. He's after fixing something deeper in our hearts. Oh, that's so good. And remember the context that I mentioned before. What was Jesus doing when this happened? He was in the middle of unveiling the Old Testament scriptures and showing how all of them pointed to him. Yeah. And then this man is dropped down in front of him. And the first thing he decides to do is say, I'm not just saying I'm the expected Messiah. Let me show you that I am. I'm going to forgive this man's sins. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders are totally correct. Only God can do that. And Jesus is exactly wanting them to come to that conclusion. That's right. Only God can do what I'm about to do. And they have such a problem with it. He says, well, both things are easy enough for me. Forgiving sins and restoring someone's body are both things that God only does, and I'm fine with doing either one of them. And just to show you my exclamation mark that I really am who I say I am, I'm going to heal him now. One thing that's important, though, to not forget is that this whole story turns on, see, how many words is it? Three little words. This whole story turns on three little words that we overlook. They're in verse 5, where it says this, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Why does Jesus act? He acts because he sees the faith of this man's friends. 
it's not the man's faith he's responding to. It's the man's friend's faith he's responding to that in the end brings freedom to this captive. He's not only captive to his paralyzed body, he's captive to his sin. And Jesus releases both of them. Why? Because he sees the faith of his friends. And we often, we use the word faith so often, Becky, that we've lost our sense of what it really is. How would you define what faith really is, even in this context? What is Jesus seeing in their faith that moves him and motivates him to act in this man's life? He knows that these men, they believe so deeply and truly that Jesus can heal them, that they were willing to dig a hole in the roof to get their friends through there. I mean, just this is an epic story. We make it sound small and we think of like the old flannel boards in the, you know, in the nursery room. But this is an epic story of these friends who were so determined and so sure that they would be successful if they just got their friend to Jesus, that he would be healed. They weren't like, well, maybe, I don't know, it's a little busy here. So I'm not really sure if Jesus can heal him. So we could come back another time. They were like, no, we're getting in because he's going to walk today. There's a progression here that I just want to highlight. When, to the extent that we believe in the realness of Jesus and who he is, to the extent that we deeply believe that and then act on it, that flows right into believing for our friends. So we believe in Jesus, and that produces a depth of belief on behalf of our friends. The two flow together. As these men believe in Jesus and show themselves to the extreme with this by digging a hole in the roof and getting him next to him, Jesus is moved by they're just childlike all inness with who he is. And out of that belief in him comes a belief on behalf of their friend. And then Jesus responds in the friend's life to, to rescue him and set, set the captive free. I think this is exactly the prod that we have in our lives, both to draw these kinds of friends and friendships and nurture these kinds of friendships in our life, but even more importantly, to be that kind of friend in others' lives. The two are connected. So to close out here, Becky, let's, let's just take these two forks in the road. Let's, let's first consider, well, how do I find and nurture and deepen friendships that lead me to Jesus in the end, that lead me to freedom from my own captivity? There's no formulas for this, especially for people who have not experienced deep and good friendships in their life. This can seem almost the same as if you're not able to have children, for instance, the aching and pain that comes with not being able to do something that you see so many others having. So how do we find and nurture and deepen the friendships that also deepen our relationship with Jesus? So one question we could probably consider is what must the paralyzed man have done to have friends like these? What, what do you think of when I ask that question, Becky? Well, vulnerability breeds vulnerability. And you do need to be careful about who you're vulnerable with. You need to move slow. Rick has talked about the book, The Speed of Trust, and there's definitely a speed of trust um, in relationships. So I'm not just saying go out to the next person you see and be totally vulnerable with them. That's not. But when you find somebody and you've progressed along the more vulnerable that you are with them, the more vulnerable that you're going to be back with, they're going to be back with you. And the deeper that relationship is going to be able to go. And sometimes, you know, I have an example of one of my greatest friends. I did not even know her. She and I were barely colleagues. We had been working together for a very short amount of time, like less than a week. And I didn't know her. And I had my first miscarriage and I was working late and she had kind of overheard what had happened and why I'd been out. And she stayed late and just turned around and said, I also can't have kids. And that vulnerability opened up for me to be able to be vulnerable with somebody who could understand what I was going through. And a, a really precious friendship grew out of that. And so sometimes it just takes that first step of just showing people what's really going on with you. Yeah. Um, let me remind us all of what I read before that Brene Brown said, she says in her book, Daring Greatly, when we allow ourselves to be seen when we admit our fears or self doubt, for example, 
we connect with others and in turn give them permission to be themselves. In sharing our fears and insecurities, we find true relationship. Now, I thought it was great that you mentioned, you know, we don't go haphazardly into trust like this, into vulnerability. We go in with our eyes wide open and we're not over vulnerable in a kind of a weird way. We have to approach this in the tension between these two things, being too reluctant to be vulnerable and being too eager to be vulnerable. We're somewhere in the middle of this, but I think what's undeniable is that until we can risk vulnerability, we will never have the kind of friends this paralyzed man had. He had to have been vulnerable with them in his life for them to be able to connect to him at such a deep level. So the first invitation we give for a friendship like this is our decision to be vulnerable with people. And then when we, after we take that risk to be open and vulnerable and available and even inviting, we do what I've mentioned before in Becky's in my relationship, we look for and find shared passion. So one of the early indicators that Becky and I could be good friends was when she read my book and it moved her. She was impacted by it. Not everyone who reads my books are impacted at a, at a deeper level. But when people are, what it shows is that there's a kindredness, a shared language, a shared passion that's there. So a book is one way to discover that, but very few people are authors. This just happens to be one way that that I can develop friendships when people respond at a deeper level to what I've written. But there's lots of things that we put out there for people where you get the kind of response back that says, you too? But the only way that we get a you too response is when we are willing to show our heart, willing to show the things that we care the deepest about, willing to live out our passions around other people. I don't know if there's something you want to add to that, Becky, or not. No, I think that's perfect. Yeah. So the last thing under this fork in the road, when we think about how can we attract people that are this kinds of friends, the paralyzed man's kind of friends, is we offer something that others can connect to. I often, when I'm, sometimes I'm in counseling-esque sort of situations with people in ministry. And one of the things that often comes up, and I often will reflect back to that person, is I will say something like, you have been reluctant to put enough out there about yourself to actually show people there's places to connect to you. So until you start risking to put yourself out there to be yourself and to risk being yourself in front of others, they won't have a ledge to stand on with you. People need a place to grab onto with others. So thinking about offering something of yourself that others can actually latch onto is super important. It goes back to whether we're inviting or not. And you might find that some of the struggles that you have had with friendships track back to your reluctance because of pain to invite. That's something to take up with Jesus. He can heal and give you baby steps to move forward in that arena because moving through pain is no easy task. If you'll be honest with him about this, and show him and talk to him about what is causing your reluctance, he will help you to relax and begin to invite again. Now there's another fork here about how do I become the kind of friend that this paralyzed man had. I like this term. I was trying to think of what would I call this. I think it means that we commit ourselves to be friend formers, friends who have a transformational impact in our friends, friend formers. These are friends who plant seeds of transformation in our friends' lives. And Becky, when you think about the friends you've had that have actually transformed your life, um, what kind of seeds are they planting to cause that kind of transformation? What do you think is going on in these friendships that causes you to be changed from the inside out because of how they are or who they are? I think, you know, sometimes when we take the posture of friendship, we have a tendency to go into it with the mindset of what am I going to get out of this? And when I was in college, my last few years of college, I was working full-time in ministry. I was going to school full-time. My life was very busy and I had a, a pretty large friend group and a steady relationship. And there was a girl who had 
really wanted to be friends with me. She wanted to be in my inner circle of friends. And she took a posture of service. She's probably the one of the most hospitable people I've ever met. And she just started showing up and just providing things that I needed. So if I needed help at an event, she offered to bring flowers and she offered to provide food. And she just started being this person who just gave so much to me. And through that service, she became one of my very best friends. We're still good friends today. And she came in with the mindset of what can I do for her? Because I want to spend more time with her and she's very busy and she already has a very full life. So I'm just going to come in and start providing things that she needs. And I actually learned so much about what it meant to be a friend who put service first and who put the needs of their, their friend first that I became a better friend from her modeling in my life. And I now, even as I have started to make friends here, I'm taking that same posture. I'm, I'm looking at strong women that I want to be around more and that I want to develop relationships. And I'm asking them, how can I help you? How can I serve you? Hmm. What can I do for you? And I think if you're in a place where you're like, I've tried so many times and I've done this and that, sometimes we need to take the posture of, what kind of friend can I be to you instead of what can I get out of this relationship? So good. And you know, over the years, we've gotten a lot of responses from people that are drawn in some ways to this podcast because they're drawn to the relationship that you and I have that is lived out in the podcast. And I think one thing that they're, I believe this because I'm drawn myself to this when I see this in others. One thing they're drawn to is that we pay attention to each other at a deeper level. We don't let things slide that are nuances in our conversation. We pursue those with each other and we're listening and paying attention at a deeper level. This is something that everyone, no matter whether you're introvert, extrovert, whatever you are, the paying attention is a learned thing. You can decide to pay better attention to people. Just as we slow down and pay better attention to Jesus on this podcast, the corollary to that is slowing down and paying better attention to people. Most people never in their life feel paid attention to at a, a deeper level. They go through life having all of their nuances obliterated and invisible. But what would happen if you started paying attention to those nuances and others, started mirroring back the delight that you experience in those nuances started proving that you notice the nuances. Um, what happens then is something is unlocked in us and something really beautiful can happen when we pay attention to others. It's the kind of skill that these friends paid with their paralyzed friend. They paid ridiculous attention to their friend so much so that when they heard there was an opportunity because Jesus the healer was in town, they acted on it immediately. They got there pretty soon after Jesus was home and started digging that hole in the roof right away when they realized they couldn't get their friend inside the door. They were paying attention. They understood their friend's needs and their friend's longings and they put two and two together for him. So, so paying attention is something anyone can do. And, Paying attention is a kind of risk, actually, too. And one aspect of becoming the kind of friend that is a transformational friend, a friend former, is that we take risks and go beyond the expected with our friends. We show our determination on behalf of them. This is not something that we do in our own strength. That's really the theme that runs all the way through spiritual grit. We need strength. We don't have enough of it. Where do we get it from? We get it from Jesus. So, to go beyond the expected and to be determined on behalf of our friends, that strength comes from Jesus. We draw from his well. But in drawing from his well, he does require that we choose to go in this direction. To become determined on behalf of our friends means to want to be determined on behalf of our friends. Then the strength we need to do that comes from him. The last thing I think that's interesting about these friends with their paralyzed friend is that the friends didn't haul their friend off the floor, the mat. They stood there amazed, grateful, probably laughing with delight when after Jesus said, now pick up your mat and, and walk, the man picked up the mat and walked. These friends didn't do it for him. They respected their friend's own volition. 
They didn't say, hey, Jesus told you to get up. Let's help you up now. They let their friend have the dignity of his own choice. And the man stood up. They didn't haul him up. They, they didn't do for them. They, did, they supported him in a healthy way. And Becky, you and I have probably had good examples and bad examples of friends who understood that boundary and friends who didn't. Do you want to say a little bit in closing here about what it means to be a friend that doesn't overstep those boundaries? What does that look like to offer your strength without being the strength for them? If you know what I mean, what does that look like? You know, I, I was cheerleaded on so greatly during this last year. And there were times when I fell down and I felt like a failure and my friends didn't lift me up by fixing my problems. They they lifted me up by reminding me who I was and what I was capable of. And they spoke when I said, I can't do this. They said, you're fierce and you're capable of doing this and you can do it. And then they sat patiently and waited for me to do it myself. And that was so life-giving because I could have fallen into a pit where I just became incapable of doing anything for myself ever again. And the strength that they offered me was not in fixing my problems. It was in reminding me daily who I was and what I was capable of and the, the fierce fighter that I had behind me, even when I couldn't see it. We don't want to be the kinds of friends that functionally weaken our friends because we do for them when they need to do for themselves. If this is only possible, the friendships are an art form. And the only way to be a, a friend who is practicing the art form of friendship is to depend on the spirit of Jesus. So gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can find out more information, but in greater detail and can click on some links to things we've talked about today. Just go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com don't forget, it's still early in the year. If you want to plunge into a renewed or restored intimacy with Jesus habit, uh, you couldn't do better but by getting a Jesus-centered Bible if you don't already have one. And if you want to be a fantastic friend to someone, get one for them. <laughs> it may be the best gift you ever give them. By the way, I thought I'd mentioned this to you way in advance. My book that I wrote about eight years ago called Sifted that had some passionate fans, but not enough of them. <laughs> that book went out of print a year or so ago, and I got the rights back to it, and I decided to re-edit it and update it and see if another publisher wanted to release it, and they did. It's been re-edited. It's been updated. The new publisher is releasing it this June and has a new title. It's called The God Who Fights For You. I just finished rereading my re-edited version, and I have to say, I think at the end of my life, this book will still be one of the favorite things I've ever done, this journey of writing this book. So it'll be called The God Who Fights For You. It'll be out in mid to late June. Uh, I'll talk more about that as the year goes on here. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. Next week will be becky but in a couple of weeks, she'll be back on the podcast. So I'm looking forward to that. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>